Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. I guess it's unavoidable that we have to kind of mark this moment in time. I try not to say anything too time sensitive in these messages because they do end up on our website where they remain sort of evergreen. They just live out there on the website for years to come. And so the more stuff I say that makes them time specific, the less relevant they are as time goes by. But we did just have a presidential election, and Sunday morning I said, however it goes, know this, know that God can save his own, can protect his own, can take care of his own in the midst of this present evil age. And that is, again, what we're going to see this evening That is something that Paul writes about. It's something that's demonstrated all the way through the Bible, all the way to the book of Revelation, that God is going to send his son with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and he's going to conquer his enemies, but he's going to protect and save his own. You see it all the way back at the book of Genesis for the seventh from Adam, Enoch, and he walked and talked with God and was not because God took him. And so... Throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, we always see consistently God's ability to differentiate between the peoples of this world and those people who belong to him. Over the course of the last year, more or less, through this presidential campaign, I've gotten lots of email from people asking me political questions. And I'm very clear about what my job is. I think if anyone is coming to me for a political opinion, they're coming to the wrong place. Because I don't do politics. I understand what I'm here on the planet to do. And I understand that my job is to teach the Bible and point people toward Christ and toward God's ability to protect his own. So I don't do politics. It came out the way, as I said on Sunday, it came out exactly the way God intended it to come out. Because we have been studying our way through First and Second Kings of all books here on Wednesday nights, and we've seen how God raises up and takes down a whole succession of kings, and yet he is in charge of everything they do. The evil kings and the things they do God in his sovereignty still works his plan. And he raises up good kings once in a while and they bless his people. And we're going to see one tonight. We're going to see your namesake, Josiah, tonight. The next good king, really the last good king that Judah and Jerusalem are going to get. But between Hezekiah, a good king, and Josiah, we're also going to have to deal with Manasseh. And Manasseh is an evil king. And so as the kingships of this world rise and fall, and as the politics of this world real and royal and nations come up and nations go away, boy, we've been seeing that the last few weeks here on Wednesday nights, haven't we? As we've seen the rise of the Assyrian kingdom 
And then we've seen the rise of the Babylonians, who then conquer the Assyrians and conquer the Egyptians, and ultimately are going to conquer Jerusalem as well. And all of this is in the plan of God. The one thing that I have found interesting over the course of especially the last couple of months, because I am a Bible guy and I see everything that happens in the world through a biblical lens, I have found it interesting that people think that what happens in America for the last 200 years is all of history. <laughs> that's, that's all that matters. It only matters what happens here in America right here, right now. The Bible is about Israel and those nations that interact with Israel and the coming of the king of Israel and the new Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens onto earth. Those are thematic elements of the Bible. And so America's not even really mentioned or alluded to in the Bible. And yet there are people who say, well, I'm Christian. And, and so what happens in America is what's going to determine the outcome of the world. And I think, gee, how did God get along for all those thousands of years before America showed up? The reality is, while it's important to us who got elected and how those elections come out, and while it will affect the politics of America for a short time, America is just another blip on the screen of God's history of planet Earth. And so as it rises and as it reels and roils and goes through its own personal history, remember that God, who is above all this, God who is timeless, God who is eternally sovereign, he sees these things as a mere drop in the bucket. And they seem so important to us. But what is really genuinely important is that we recognize God's lordship over all things. I have said for years now, you've heard me say it over and over, that people keep thinking, oh, the next guy, he's going to fix it. The next guy. I'm old enough to have seen a lot of next guys now. They come and go for four or eight years, and then everybody gets all excited and says, the next guy, the next president, he's going to fix it. And yet the troubles of this world just keep coming and just keep coming because there's not going to be genuine peace and prosperity and quietness and godlessness and holiness to the Lord that's not going to happen on this planet until the Prince of Peace returns. Right. And in between, we're just going to keep electing other human beings and thinking maybe this human being is going to fix it. And maybe he'll fix something and maybe he'll break something. And in the end, we'll all start saying, well, okay, not him. I meant the next guy. He's going to fix it. So... It's an interesting time in American history. We'll see what happens, but uh, I'm not looking to the next president. I'm looking for the King of Kings. Mm -hmm. That's the one I'm voting for. Got it? Got it. So there, that's my political statement. Sorry, you don't get to vote in God's kingdom. I was going to say. I, I don't get any votes. I know. I know. The election already happened. God elected and we didn't get a vote. 
Turn to 2 Kings 21. That is where we left 2 Kings a month ago or so. We have been working our way verse by verse through, well, well really through the Old Testament. We uh, started in Genesis and we're as far as 2 Kings 21 right now. And when we hit that moment of 2 Kings 21, there were certain prophets that rose up around that period. In fact, last time we were in 2 Kings, we talked about Hezekiah and Isaiah. And I said that there were also contemporaries of Isaiah who were prophesying at that exact moment, who were talking about the Babylonian captivity to come and how God was going to judge Judah the same way that he had judged Israel So we went and looked at Habakkuk and Zephaniah and uh, Nahum. We looked at those three prophets and we saw exactly what they have said God is going to do to Jerusalem. He's going to bring the Babylonian captivity. Okay, this is really, really bad news. On top of that, right about the time that they are prophesying, Manasseh comes on the scene. And Manasseh is just a really bad, ruinous king for Jerusalem. Which is sad because they had just gotten through Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a reasonably good king. And then they have to deal with Manasseh. And then God in his astounding grace, something that I really don't understand at this juncture in in Judah's history, God gives Judah one more really good king, King Josiah. And then after that, it's over. It's just a succession of bad kings and the Babylonian captivity and a series of Babylonian incursions into uh, Judah, into Jerusalem. So it all goes downhill from here. But this week and next week, we get to talk about the reforms that were made by Josiah there in Judah. And I really think it's almost ironic, the things that Josiah does because just before God brings the Babylonians down on Jerusalem, he gives them one more king who recognizes the supremacy of God and who finds the book of the law again and who repents because Jerusalem is not following after the law, the covenant that they've made with God to follow after his rules and his law. God gives them that one more King, but it's almost like God is saying there's going to be one more leader in Jerusalem who's going to call the people to repentance and to turn back to God. And of course, they don't. But in the midst of all that trouble and all that pain and all that warfare and all those incursions and all this bad news and all these bad prophecies, in the midst of all that, God protects his own Josiah. Just like I said on Sunday morning, that God knows how to protect his own even in the midst of terrible times. You're going to see that again. So that was all introduction. That takes us right to 2 Kings 21. We have looked at what the prophets have prophesied. We have looked at Habakkuk. By the way, I want to ask a question. So before you came to GCA... And I, I grew up in the church. I've spent a lot of time in church. I personally had never heard a sermon on Nahum. I had never really heard anybody talk about Zephaniah or Habakkuk. How many of you had ever heard any of that before? I think that the reason 
that for the most part, preachers don't preach about those minor prophets and other minor prophets is that they really don't know where they fit. They really don't understand how the Bible works and what the succession of history is in the Old Testament and where Nahum and Zephaniah and Habakkuk fit in the history of the Old Testament and the kings of Israel. So they don't really have a context for it. And that's because so many people think that the Bible is just a a succession of unrelated stories. And that's what I'm hoping you're seeing now, is that actually the whole Old Testament fits together. It has one fabric, and it is the history of God's dealings with his people Israel throughout time, up until the 400 years when he's silent, and then Jesus, John the Baptist, coming onto the scene of history. Once you get that overview, suddenly the whole Old Testament opens up to you. And that's really what I've been driving at in these studies in the Old Testament. So I hope you're getting all that. Chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. That's a name I'm glad has fallen out of common use. I haven't met a Hephzibah in a while. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. So these people groups and their idols were there in the land of Canaan. And when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan, one of the things that he commanded them to do was to drive those people groups out and to make sure that they did not worship those idols. And yet Manasseh did so much evil, and you're going to see that he really cements this this idol worship again. And what he does is even worse than the nations that God drove out. So as far as being a king of Judah, he is actually as depraved, if not more, as the unbelievers. He did evil. In the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, the king of Israel. Who is Ahab? Anybody remember Ahab's wife? Jezebel. This is Ahab and Jezebel. We're going back to one of the worst times in Israel's history. And yet he is doing the same things that Ahab, the king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. That is in direct contradistinction to God's rule that you would not make any graven images, that you would bow yourselves down and worship them. And God was specific. Don't make images of the things that are in the heavens or the things that are on the earth. God was quite specific, as we saw last week through Habakkuk, that God actually mocked people for making their own idols, works of their own hands, and then they would yell at it to wake up. And they would yell at it to be their God. And they would bow down and they would worship the things they had made. And they would expect those to be their leaders. And God mocked them for that. And yet here he is again, worshiping all the host of heaven, and serving them. By the way, is that still going on anywhere? Yes. 
It is. All the time. People are constantly worshiping the host of heaven instead of the God who is the creator of heaven and earth. You see Paul talk about it in the book of Romans. That people are not to be worshiping these things. That men are not to be bowing down to the creation, but to the creator. And still to this very day, we have people in the news and people on TV and, and the uh, regular line of hucksters that you can find on just about any relation. I stopped myself in the middle. I edited yeah, I'm saying it anyway. Okay, that you can find on just about any religious station, on the TV or on the radio, you see the religious hucksters who are saying that you are to bow down to a great many things. I got an email just the other day from a fellow who said, you know, I belong to a good, solid Baptist church, and I've loved them for a long time, but now they're introducing all of this Eastern religion and contemplative prayer and these things that I'm really struggling with, and we're seeing that infiltrating churches all over America right now. Thank God he's struggling with it. But people are not. People are just taking it in and just mixing the worship of God with the worship of a great many different things. Well, we got to read or we're not going to get forward here. And he worshiped all the host of heaven and he served them, and he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. That is something that God, Yahweh, had said. Jerusalem was his city. The temple was his temple. That's where he was going to place his name. And yet, Manasseh built altars there. Verse 5, for he built altars for all the host of heaven in the courts of the house of the Lord. So now he's desecrating the temple with the worship of the hosts of heaven and with the worship that was introduced to Israel by foreign nations, not by Yahweh. Where were the Levites to keep him from doing this? Haven't we very frequently seen religious people just kind of go along with whatever the state says? Just kind of go along to get along? Don't cause waves? This is what the king wants? We've seen that a lot, haven't we? And then on top of that... He made his sons pass through the fire. God was specific about this. Do not send your children through the fires of Molech. You know Molech? Yeah. You know the metal god? Who they would stoke the furnace of the belly of Molech until Molech, a metal god, would become so hot that when they put their children in the outstretched hands of Molech, the children would sizzle and fry and scream, and they thought that as the children were dying, that that was satisfying their God. Now, you shake your head at me, and you think, oh, my ride's here. I'm sorry, I got to go. <laughs> and you think, gosh, that's terrible, these people who would sacrifice their children to Molech, that they would make their children suffer to satisfy their God. Isn't that still happening? Because abortion is still running rampant in our country, and we are still sacrificing our children to try to satisfy our idolatrous government, our idolatrous concept of what our God ought to be. And you hear people say all the time, that's my right to kill my child. That's my right. 
even late term, even if it's a couple days before the baby's born, I have the right as a mother, because I have a right over my own body, to do whatever I want with my own body. It's well, now they're worshiping their own body to such a degree that they will sacrifice their children. Yeah, it's really quite remarkable. So before you shake your head and say, oh, those Israelites and their Molechs, it's still going on today. It's just taken a different form. He made his sons pass through the fire. He practiced witchcraft and used divination. Oh, by the way, is that still going on? (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, that would be a yes. And he dealt with mediums and spiritists. You can go up on Nolansville Road. There are people who have storefronts. Come on in. Palm reading, mediums, spiritists. And they're still around. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. The only reason that I emphasize that those things are still around is because if God saw it as evil back then, has God changed? He doesn't. God does not change. And so just because you slap a coat of paint on it and make it all look good and make it politically acceptable doesn't mean that God doesn't still think that it's evil. And as long as there have been human beings on the planet, they have gravitated toward these evils, and they still are today. But don't worry, the next guy's going to fix it. (laughs) Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Okay, let's talk about the forever for a moment. I read a commentary not long ago that said, when God speaks of eternity or speaks of forever in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean what it means in the New Testament. That when God says he saved you and he's loved you forever, that you can count on that. But the, when God says forever in the Old Testament, especially when he's talking about Israel, it means something different. It means for a short period of time until you break the covenant, but it doesn't mean forever. I say that's wrong because I think God understands words. I think God knows what he's saying. And I think if God had intended to say, I will set my name in that temple and on Jerusalem for a short period of time, he would have said that. But when he says, I will set my name in Jerusalem forever, I believe he means that. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that's why when you get to the book of Revelation and you get to Revelation 21 and 22 and you read about a place called the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and settling on the earth, that is God keeping his promise that he is going to forever establish his name and his rule in Jerusalem. Because that's what he said. The difficulty with people who write things like that is that they have to prove it. And so far, nobody can prove it. Because nobody can say, I know the mind of God so perfectly that I have actually talked to him and he's told me that he doesn't mean forever right here 
Nobody knows that. All they've got to go with is what God has actually said. And what he has actually said is it's forever. And by the way, if God can say forever and mean temporary, mean short term, then you have zero hope when he says, I'll take care of you forever. I'll love you forever. I'll bring you to my heaven forever and you're going to be in my presence forever. And then you could get there and he could go, I meant short term. I know it sounded like forever. I know it had that everlasting feel to it. But what I really meant was you have no hope that he means forever for you if he doesn't mean forever for Jerusalem. And you have to keep that in mind as God is bringing these punishments on Jerusalem. You have to recognize that those punishments are not for the purpose of eternally destroying Jerusalem, never to be brought up again the way that far too many people in the church are still preaching it, that God is done with Israel utterly and completely because they broke his law. You have to understand that God has made forever promises, and those forever promises have to come true. So verse 6, he made his sons pass through the fire. He practiced witchcraft. He used divination, and he dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking God to anger. And you're going to see how that plays out. The Babylonian captivity is in response to all these things that are going on with Manasseh and the bloodshed that Manasseh brings into Jerusalem. And then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Let's talk about the Asherah word for one quick moment, because again, these words kind of, we get the sense that they're historic but they're no longer something that we're dealing with today. Do you know the other name for Asherah? It's going to come up in the next chapter. Ishtar? Is that what you said? Yeah, Ishtar is a lot more than just a bad movie starring Dustin Hoffman. I mean, it's Ishtar is another name for Asherah. It's a term that means the queen of heaven, which the Catholic Church has glommed onto and simply attributes it to Mary so that Mary becomes queen of heaven, and instead of worshiping Ishtar, they just worship Mary. They're still worshiping a human being, a creature instead of the creator. But Ishtar is also the name from which we get Easter. And Resurrection Sunday is now celebrated under the heading of Easter. And I just can't imagine that God is looking approvingly on the fact that the whole world has taken the resurrection of his son, the single most important moment in human history, the moment when God fully redeemed all his chosen and elect people, and that they refer to that moment by the name of a Canaanite God. And you see it everywhere. And so again, as you look back on these things and think, oh, those people, they were so foolish. We're smarter now. No, we're not. We're still just as traditional, just as caught in our very human desire to worship ourselves and worship our own carved images and worship our own holy days as we ever were. Again, as long as there have been people on the planet 
these kinds of things have happened because human beings are fallen. Verse 8, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore. Talking about the place, Jerusalem, where I placed my name. I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers. If only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. And of course, they broke his law, and that's going to result in the Babylonian captivity. But then ultimately, God is going to keep Judah as a people group, even though they go into Babylon. This is the time of Jeremiah, the time of Daniel. He's still going to prophesy that God is going to restore Judah, because don't forget that all the way back at Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel, that in his dying days, when he leaned on his staff there in Egypt and and pronounced blessings and curses over his 12 sons, he chose the tribe of Judah, and he said that Shiloh, that the Messiah, that the Redeemer of Israel was going to come through Judah. So if Judah is permanently scattered and dispersed and out of their land, then how is Judah going to bring about the Messiah? So he's going to punish Judah, and he's going to take Judah out of Jerusalem, but then he's going to restore them, as he already said, through Isaiah the prophet, 150 years in advance, naming Cyrus by name, that through Cyrus he's going to bring people back to establish Jerusalem, to build the temple, to build the walls of the city again. And then sure enough, Judah's going to end up back there in Jerusalem because that's where the Messiah has to come. So there's all these predictions still to come, but in the course of time here, in the course of Josiah, the good king, and then the Babylonian captivity, and then the Judahites being taken out. If you were in that generation of people living at that moment, you'd have no other conclusion you could draw but that God was against you. You would have to go back to the word of God, to the promises of God, to the established sayings of what God is going to do, the promises and the covenants that he has made in order to understand that what you're going through right then is not the end of the story. There's more to come because God has made more promises. And that's still where we stand today. Despite what the world may look like, despite what's going on in the world as it rocks and reels and roils, we know for a fact that God has made promises. He's working on this He's working on this one too, and he is ultimately going to bring about his promises because he said it in his word. So, so God has said, I'm not going to make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. They broke that law. He's going to take them out of Judah. He is going to make their feet wander for a while. But remember that he said, I'm going to make a new covenant with them, with those same people. Jeremiah 31, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah because he realizes they've broken the Moses law, the Mosaic law. Therefore, God can't restore them through the Mosaic law. That's broken. That's done away with. Now he's going to restore them through a new covenant that he's going to make through the blood of his son. Verse 9, he then admits they broke the law, but they did not listen 
And Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Now, the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets. That's why we took the time to look at what the prophets had to say. He spoke to them saying, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did that were before him, and has also made Judah to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria, and I will plummet the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem like one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. By the way, another phrase that I find really interesting. I keep saying the God of the Bible is the God of the minutia. God just made a direct reference to dishwashing. He knows what that is. And he said, I'm going to treat Jerusalem like a person who's washing a dish. You wash the top, you turn it over, you wash the bottom. That's what I'm going to do to Jerusalem. He's a God who took a little tiny detail of daily life and used that as his example of how he's going to treat Jerusalem. He is, again, the God of the details. I'm going to stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria. Okay, so what did he do to Samaria? That's the northern kingdom. What did he do to them? Assyrian captivity. captivity. Took them into captivity. They've been taken out of their land. So God is essentially saying the same way that he stretched a line against them and took them into their captivity, he's going to do the same thing to Jerusalem. I'm going to plummet the house of Ahab and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hands of their enemies, and they shall become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came out from Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood. I got to pause on that one for a moment. Are we still shedding a lot of innocent blood? Yes. Yeah. Has anybody here seen video of what, not only abortion, but especially late-term abortion, what it looks like? I mean, you're actually actively crushing the head of a baby that could survive outside the womb. They're shedding innocent blood for the convenience of the mother or whoever else thought this was a good idea. And here God says, I'm willing to turn away from Judah because of Manasseh's penchant for shedding innocent blood. God is clearly against this. God has made his will known over and over and over again, and yet America thinks that, and the Western world thinks that, it's okay, just do it. As long as the people all agree as a group, then we don't have to worry about what God says. 
It's the same thing they were doing. As long as Manasseh says it's okay, the king says it's okay, we can do it. If the government says it's okay, we can do it. If the Supreme Court somehow magically found the right to abortion in the uh, Bill of Rights, then it's okay. Well, all I'm driving at is that God sees this as a horrendous evil and he's willing to punish people for it. And you would think that smart people would wake up and go, you know, God has a history of punishing people for this kind of stuff. We should probably not do this, but we do. But in a sense, aren't we being punished? We were talking about it on the way here. Someone that was terminated in 1973 would be 46 years old today. We have lost so many people as a nation and so many people as individuals. It is our punishment. I agree that that's part of the punishment. I think everybody in this room would agree since we were talking about the elections earlier, that uh, the two candidates that we were given to choose from, here's bad and worse for your leaders, now choose. How is this not God's punishment on a once greater nation? Because they have done evil in my sight and they have been provoking me to anger since the day that their fathers came from Egypt, even to this very day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Besides his sin with which he made Judah to sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin which he committed, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son became king in his place. Okay, that's the story of Manasseh. Now, at that point, Judah could have completely dilapidated into nothing but God's punishment and nothing but evil always continually. And then God did something truly remarkable. This is the end of Judah. He has predicted it through the prophets. The prophets speak with one voice. They have had a succession of bad kings. Hezekiah was a bit better, but even Hezekiah failed toward the end when he showed all the treasures of his house to the kings that were coming from the foreign nations to come and see him. And he showed the Babylonians all his riches and everything. So even Hezekiah made his mistakes. And God could very well have said, well, then that's it. I'm just going to bring devastation onto Judah at this point. And instead, he gives them Josiah. Josiah, who's going to discover the book of the law again, who's going to reestablish the Passover again, who's going to establish the worship of God in Israel again, so that the people cannot say, we didn't know. Before he's going to bring Babylon on them, before he's going to bring them a succession of puppet kings, before he's going to do everything that he predicted, he gives them one more example of godfulness. Is godfulness a word? Of godliness. Yes. And I find that amazing. If it had been me, I'd have been wiping my hands going, okay, I told you what to do and you didn't do it. We're done here. Sounds like those people hadn't really taught those people what 
their history. They didn't know. They just didn't know. In fact, the book of the law was lost to them. Generation after generation, especially after all these evil kings, didn't even know what it was God expected of them. And God gives them a witness. He gives them Josiah to bring them back to understand what the word of God is. But in the process, he makes them doubly guilty. Now they're not just guilty of the shedding of innocent blood and the worshiping of idols and all the other witchcraft and sorcery that's going on in Jerusalem. But now they even have the opportunity to have the word of God placed in front of them. And they reject that. Hey, is that still going on? The Bible's in pretty much every hotel in America. Check into a hotel, the Word of God right there. Is America busy rejecting it anyway? Yes. Sure. God has graciously given people access to his Word. He has sent them preachers. He has sent them the opportunity through the radio, through TV, through the internet, giving him opportunity after opportunity to pay attention to his word and do things the way he says. And yet they reject it, which makes them doubly guilty. So Ammon, Ammon's going to come up after Manasseh for just a moment, but he's only going to be king for two years. So he's almost like a footnote here. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haraz of Jotba. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Oh, there's no surprise. As Manasseh, his father, had done. For he walked in all the way that his father had walked, and he served the idols that his father had served, and he worshipped them. So he forsook the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. How bad did that guy have to be? He's only been king for two years and his servants kill him. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. And then the people of the land killed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the place made Josiah, his son, king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon, which he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his grave in the garden of Uzzah. And Josiah, his son, became king in his place. Now, both the kings and the chronicler are going to give a lot of ink. And you have to remember that ink is a commodity that doesn't come cheap. And whenever you see God extend a lot of ink to somebody, you really have to kind of sit up and pay attention. Ammon gets three sentences, and, and Ammon's done. But when it comes to Josiah, just like we saw in the book of Genesis... That God said, things happened, things happened, things happened, things happened, and Abraham. And then the book stretched right out and really took its time to tell us about Abraham. Well, that's the same thing that's going to happen here with Josiah. So we're going to be talking about Josiah for the balance of tonight, and then we'll talk about him next week. And then it all goes downhill. Josiah was only eight years old when he became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bokath. 
And he did right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, how did that happen? Think about this, because his grandfather is one of the most evil kings that they had seen in that generational period in Judah. Judah has completely gone into all kinds of idolatry, witchcraft, and all the stuff that we've read, and harlotries, everything else. Judah's a really bad place. His grandfather's really, really evil and had been king for a while. His dad is king for two years and then is murdered by his own servants, and then the servants are killed. Everything around Josiah is nothing but evil, evil, evil. How did he get so good? This is before he and this is before he found the book. Yeah, the mercy of God, the election of God, and the purpose of God being served in making sure that Judah knows what the law says one more time. Remember the last chapter, God had said, this is the place where I've chosen to place my name, and I gave them the law through Moses, and they broke that law. Well, now the law is lost to them. The book of the law, they don't know anything about it. So God gives them a good king, and he's going to give them the book of the law, and they're going to hear it again, and they're all going to say, okay, we make a covenant with God. We agree. We're going to do it. And that makes them extra guilty. God knows what he's doing, but here he has chosen, he has elected the good king Josiah, and you're going to see that he's going to save Josiah out of the trouble that he's going to bring on all the rest of Judah, because God knows how to protect his own. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bokath. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. And now it came about in the 18th year of King Josiah. So he's been king from the time that he was eight years old, he became king. Now it's the 18th year that he's been king. He's 26 years old. He's 26 years old that the king sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah, and the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that is brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. At the temple, at the entrance, at the doors, there were boxes and urns into which people could put their money. You might remember Jesus sat himself at the temple entrance, and he watched people coming and bringing their gifts, giving their money, and that's when he saw the widow that gave the two mites. And so you could actually see people walking into the temple, and they would give their gifts, put their money into the urns and the boxes right there by the door. So he says, go to Hilkiah the high priest and tell him to count that money. Verse 5, and let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have had the oversight of the house of the Lord and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house. Okay, so if he's willing to give all the money that comes into the temple to the workmen to restore the temple, that gives you some idea what kind of disrepair the temple was in. 
The people of God had not only turned their back on God and everything that is godliness, but they had turned their back on the temple itself. And as we just saw, there were foreign altars built in the temple. And so now he wants to have it restored, but he's going to do it not through hard-headed rulership, not through saying the king demands that all the workers in Jerusalem go. Instead, he wants the workmen to be worthy of their hire. And so he says, all the money that's coming to the temple, give it to the workers and put them to work restoring the temple. And in a moment, he's going to say, and don't even make an accounting of it. Don't even make them account for every penny you give them. Just give that money to them and let them go do their work. So let them deliver it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house to the carpenters and the builders and the masons and for buying timber and buying hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money delivered into their hands for they deal faithfully. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now what this tells you is it was always there. It was always in the house of the Lord, just like it was supposed to be. But as the house had dilapidated, and as altars to foreign gods were established, the book of the law sat there unread. No one paid any attention to it anymore until the high priest, Hilkiah, finds it again and says to Shaphan the scribe, look what I found. This is the actual law of God. And it's been sitting here unheeded all these hundreds of years. Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. And Shaphan, the scribe, came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, or on top of that, Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book, probably a scroll at that point. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. Do you realize that means that the king sat quiet while at very least the books of Leviticus and the books of Deuteronomy, probably also the books of Numbers, because that contains a lot of the law. Do you realize that he sat quietly and let somebody read him all that? And you think my sermons are long. <laughs> and the king was... Sorry, I had to get that out. The king was willing to sit and listen to all that. It came about that when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. That's a sign of repentance. It's a sign of mourning. It's like getting down in the dust before God and throwing dust over your head. It's a way of saying, I repent before God because he suddenly realizes this is what God told our forefathers all those years ago, and we're not doing any of it. So he tore his clothes, and then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, 
Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Akbar, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, the king's servant. He said, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found for great is the wrath of God that burns against us. How did he know that? Because the law says, yeah, the law says so. The law has a curse built right into it. The book of the law includes do this and you'll get great blessing. Don't do it and I will curse you. And so the king recognizes great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Uzziah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, who was the keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her. This is a, a prophetess that we don't know anything about, except what it says about her right here. But you will notice that she is a prophetess. I get very, very tired of the people who try to tell me that the Bible is inherently anti-woman. Here is a king who wants to inquire of the Lord, and he sends all these dignitaries, and they go to the prophetess because they know that God speaks through her. She said to them, we'll read this and uh, we'll call it a night. She said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Did God just say, I bring evil? That's what he said. I'm going to bring evil on this place. Now, absolutely, on the place and on the people. Now, what you have to recognize and realize is the way that God continues to use means, even though he takes personal responsibility for it. He is going to bring destruction and calamity. It's the word raw there. It's the Hebrew word that means calamity and trouble. He is going to bring that on Jerusalem, but how is he going to do it? Through Babylon, through Nebuchadnezzar, through a foreign king, he's going to bring the evil, but it's still his responsibility. It's still his sovereignty that is bringing this evil on the people. So he doesn't directly bring the evil on them. He uses the means to bring the evil on them, but he takes responsibility for it. I'm the one bringing the evil which I'm just going to say real briefly because I don't have time to get into this and it is getting late. But when you get to the book of Revelation or when you get to Paul's writings about the little horn, even Daniel talking about the little horn, when you hear about the king that is to come on the planet and you hear that he's going to come and be a man who understands dark sentences and he's going to bring a seven-year peace pact with Israel and all that, Recognize that that is still God in his sovereignty accomplishing what he has said he is going to accomplish. Even though he's using a man to accomplish it, it's still God's doing. It's still God's judgment. Got that? Yes, sir. 
So thus says the Lord, behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and they have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. But, okay, God has just said, this place, these people, they're going to feel my wrath and my wrath is burning against them and it's not going to be quenched. And then God says, but, and he's going to say to Josiah, but it's different with you. I'm going to do this among all these people. I'm going to bring all this trouble and mayhem. Oh, yeah, but you, you're mine. And because you're mine, I'm going to treat you differently. So again, I just keep saying it over and over and proving it time and time again through the Bible. Again, even in the midst of all kinds of trouble and chaos, even in the midst of the worst and darkest periods in the world, that God still knows how to preserve his own. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have repented, you have torn your clothes, and you have wept before me? I have truly heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Neither shall your eyes see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So they brought word back to the king. We're going to stop right there. So God's saying, I'm going to do all this. I'm going to curse the place. I'm going to curse the people. I'm going to bring bloodshed and destruction. I'm going to do all that, but... Because you're mine and because of how you have turned your heart to me, which is why I began by saying, look, he was eight years old. He had a a wicked grandfather. He had a wicked father. Where did this faith in God come from? And we all agreed it had to be God's mercy to him. It had to be God in the midst of an evil generation choosing a person that was his. And then as a result of the fact that God chose him, his heart was fully devoted to the Lord. And when he read the word of God, he felt it. He understood it. He understood that the people were wicked and evil against God. And he repented before God and his heart was tender toward the things of God. And as a result, God said, I'm going to still do these things but not until you die. When you've been gathered to your fathers, you won't see the wickedness I'm going to bring. You won't see all this evil I've predicted. It's going to happen, but not till I've safely taken you home, gathered you to your fathers. So this interrelationship between God and Josiah, I find very, very fascinating because there's nothing in his society. There's nothing in his upbringing, in his terribly wicked grandfather and father, and certainly all the forefathers before that, other than Hezekiah. There's been this succession of of evil that has generated this young king who, at eight years old, already begins to have a heart for God. And then because he has a heart for God, when he reads the word of God, he then responds to the word of God. And you're going to see it next week 
when he reestablishes the Passover and invites all of Jerusalem to come and to worship God with him. And that is the way the relationship works, that God starts by putting in you the ability to comprehend his word and to understand the things of God. And you don't have full or complete knowledge. In fact, you're kind of a a blank slate at that point. But God has given you an ability that he hasn't given the rest of the world. Some people don't understand the things of God because God simply has not granted them the ability to understand those things. But if he has given you the ability, then when you confront the word of God, it comes alive for you. For you, you read it and you go, this is the very word of God. I am taken by this word. This word is is the word of life. I live by this. I feed off this. I live, like Jesus said, not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. And that happens to you because God has already implanted in you the ability to understand to begin with. And then as you read the word of God and it fills you and it converts you and it changes you, then you respond with godliness, which you're going to see Josiah do. And that's the way it works all the way through the Bible, beginning to end. It starts with God. It ends with the worship of God, and in between, we react to God. But nowhere in the Bible, I will say one more time, nowhere in the Bible do you ever see the relationship between a human and God start with the human. Nowhere does the person make up their mind. Nowhere does the person say, I'm wicked and evil, but I should do better. I should go to God, and I should repent of my sin, and... I should make Jesus my Lord and Savior. That's very popular language. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible, but consistently all the way through, you see God picking and choosing his people, drawing them to himself, changing them, converting them through his word. And notice once, I've got to let you go, but notice once again, one more thing that God did. Because he had picked Josiah, he made sure his word got to Josiah. His word was there. It was in the temple. It was hidden in the temple. Generations and generations had forgotten about it. The temple lay dilapidated. But when God picked Josiah, he made sure that Josiah got the word of God. And I contend that God is big enough and sovereign enough to make sure his word gets to you. Got it? Faith comes by here. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if he has chosen you, he will make sure that his word gets to you and then you will react to his word. You're not the actor. You're the reactor. He is always the actor. Got it? Okay, you know where we're picking up next week. We'll finish up with Josiah next week. Any questions? I shudder to say. (laughs) I think it is interesting how a good king father a bad king who can and bad king can father a good king it's really not human and yet isn't it still today that good parents can father a bad child and that bad parents can father a good child Mm -hmm. some of my favorite most faithful people have told me stories about the horror they were born into but God plucked them like a brand out of a fire and drew them to himself because election all the way through the Bible you can't escape it it's God electing and choosing 
All right. Say goodbye to the internet, folks. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.